you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. From the Mountain Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. May Martinez. L.A. County says elementary schools are clear to reopen. LAUSD and the Teachers Union are still negotiating what reopening would look like. We're going to hear from Supervisor Janice Hahn on what has to happen next to get the kids back in class. Plus, find out the names on Governor Newsom's list for the job of state attorney general. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. I'm A. Martinez. Thanks for joining us. Coming up, we're going to get into the politics of Attorney General Javier Becerra's confirmation hearing for Health and Human Services Secretary and also hear about all the potential candidates who could replace him as AG if he gets that new job. But first, we're going to dive into the news that elementary schools in L.A. County can now reopen. Public Health Department made the announcement last night, noting that cases have decreased enough that it would be safe to allow kids back in the classroom. Now, that doesn't mean it will happen anytime soon. We're going to talk to Supervisor Janice Hahn a little later in the hour about what comes next. But what does the science say? Joining us to discuss this and answer all of our coronavirus questions is Paula Cannon, a virologist at the University of Southern California's Keck School of Medicine. All right. Now, the announcement seems uh, rather sudden. So what's the reasoning behind this decision? And does it make sense from your perspective, Professor, given the current data on cases? So as far as I understand it, you know, the dominoes that need to be lined up are, first of all, the numbers need to be lower. You need to get a green light from the county's public health system. Schools actually need to have plans in place and the paperwork submitted and approved at the county and state level. And then finally, agreement by everybody involved. And that will include, you know, the specific school district, their teachers and if involved, unions. And what happened this week, the key trigger, if you like, was the numbers because the county's numbers, uh, and in particular the seven-day daily average of cases, dipped below 25 cases per 100,000. And that was sort of like the key trigger to now, um, you know, uh, enable the county to say, okay, schools can, can think about reopening. Now, we've heard that vaccinated teachers are a must, at least for uh, LA Unified, before schools are fully reopen. But what do we know about how this virus transmits among children? Yeah, so this is interesting, isn't it? Because I think what we are seeing now that we're getting data is that for schools that have reopened, there has been surprisingly low level of in-school transmission. And schools really aren't the sort of super spreader sites that you think they should be based on, you know, the number of people that were there. And honestly, this this blew me away. And I've, I've really looked at this data and I'm kind of scratching my head. And I, I think a couple of things are happening. Um, you know, one is that, you know, schools are a community of willing people. They have rules, people comply. So if you're told to wear a mask, if you're told to, you know, keep distance, to open windows and keep ventilation, you know, compared to say, uh, you know, a sports bar, a school is a community where people are much more likely to comply. So I think what we're seeing is that when this type of behavior and these rules are, are put in and people comply with them, 
guess what? We massively reduce the risk of transmission. So I think that's, you know, one of the things that's going on. And then the question about vaccination, I mean, definitely, you know, there's a move to vaccinate staff in different states. You know, teachers are higher or lower up the sort of, you know, the list of who's a priority. I know in in Los Angeles, uh, you know, Superintendent Butner has said that he wants to have all of the staff and the, and the teachers vaccinated. And I think that that's about 25,000 people just for the elementary schools in LA USD. So it's, it's a large number. And currently, you know, the only people who are eligible are the people who meet the other criteria, for example, of being over 65. But, you know, we're, we're, we're ramping up vaccination, we're ramping up both sites, and, you know, we are working our way down that list. So I think teachers will be, will be you know, vaccinated quite shortly. Yeah, I guess, Paula, what I'm worried about is things like recess or lunch or when kids maybe are playing. I just know that when one kid has lice, it seems like the whole classroom has lice. <laughs> yeah, and again, I think, you know, child-to-child transmission is probably lower um, than even, you know, sort of adult-to-adult transmission, especially with younger children. And, th- and this might be part of the thinking of saying, let's open the elementary schools first, that, that we know that transmission amongst younger kids is less. And it may be linked to the fact that we know they are much less likely to have symptoms or severe symptoms, which is probably also related to just less amounts of virus in their body and therefore um, less infectivity. So it's kind of one of those weird things that if a, you know, if, if a five-year-old sneezes at you, you know, maybe you don't need to be quite as horrified as, <laughs> as if a, a 25-year-old sneezes yeah. at you. One thing I worry about, though, Paul, I'll give my, I'll use myself as an example. Obviously, I know this was a long time ago, a different time, different circumstances. But when I was in elementary school, uh, when I would come home from school, I would come home to 11 adults, five aunts, three uncles, uh, two grandparents and my mom in a small house. So it's it's 12 people crammed in together. Um, and mm-hmm. I got to imagine that some in L.A. Unified are in the same situation. Some kids are coming home to this. That's, I yeah. think, worries me is bringing something home to grandma and grandpa if if you're a little kid. No, absolutely. And I think the key thing there is to kind of look at the data that says that transmission within schools has actually been really low. So the idea would be that if if the behavior in schools, and that that's going to include all sorts of things, and, you know, we, we talk about masking, ventilation, distance, but also, you know, aggressive testing and foregoing some of the riskier activities, you know, if the levels of transmission within the school are kept really low, then the domino effect of that is that then the risk to the communities that the children are returning to is also low. And again, it kind of surprised me, but the data is now out there that schools that have reopened, you're not seeing them being a source of spread out into the community. Now, as we discuss uh, opening everything back up, uh, one of the concerns out there are these uh, variants of the coronavirus that are showing up. Now, to review, how many strains, uh, Paula, have been identified in recent months and which ones uh, have shown up in Southern California? So I'd say there are kind of four strains we're keeping our eyes on. There's one in Britain, there's one in South Africa, there's one in Brazil, and there's even a homegrown California strain. Um, the ones we are, you know, kind of more concerned about, the British one, um, definitely that's over here. There's over a thousand cases now in the U.S., including California. The South African and Brazilian strains, really only a handful of cases. Um, a couple in California as well, though, and 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 they are 
perhaps of, of more concern. So we're really keeping an eye on those. Now, I, I know these things are, are constantly under study and review, but what do we know about some of these strains, uh, how maybe they've contributed to a greater spread of the virus? Probably most of the information is available about the British strain that, that um, really has kind of now become the dominant strain in the UK. And I think there's very credible data to say that it is actually more infectious and, um, you know, there's also evidence that the South African and Brazilian strains, which have kind of flared up in areas that already had high levels of infection, there's probably also evidence that those also have increased infectivity. But with the South African and Brazilian strains, we're also concerned that the particular mutations they've acquired may make them a little bit more resistant to the immunity that develops both in somebody who's previously been infected and also in somebody who's been vaccinated. So that's the kind of the, the real concern there. Is the virus evolving to kind of keep one step ahead of our ability to vaccinate people against it? We're talking to Paula Cannon, a virologist with USC's Keck School of Medicine. Now, turning to the vaccine rollout, it's been slow. It's been confusing for some, too. Uh, state seems to be changing up the guidance daily. What is your sense about how things are going on the ground here in the L.A. area? I'm going to cut them a break. I, I think we've seen massive progress. I mean, it's it's been like a handful of weeks. And for something that's in, incredibly short supply that everyone wants and requires, you know, the logistics of licensed professionals to do the vaccination, ultra low cold, you know, freezers. I think it's amazing that we've done as much as we can do. And and what I'm seeing now, which is great, is, is the variety of options. You know, we've got these mega sites like yeah. Six Flags and Dodgers, but we've also got community clinics, we've got pharmacies, and now we've got a new federal center opening up at Cal State LA. So I think really we've got, the, we're, you know, we're figuring out the logistics and we're on track to vaccinate people very quickly as long as we can get the vaccine supply in. What do we know about how Blue Shield's involvement might uh, fast-track things even quicker? So they've just signed a contract in California, and I think the idea behind that is that, you know, they're going to bring computer power and algorithms to help prioritize and sort of smooth out the rollout. And the plan is that we would be able to move from the current, I think it's about a million vaccines uh, per week in California to three million vaccines a week. And I was trying to do the math and I'm not very good at this on live radio, but I, I think that means that at three million a week, you know, within sort of 10 weeks, we, we could do the whole of, of California. So yeah. having the computer power, if you like, of these sort of major healthcare providers, also Kaiser getting involved as well, should really help with the logistics issues. Are, are we vaccinating people fast enough, Paula, to stay ahead of any new major spikes in the virus? No, oh, Lordy, where's my crystal ball? Um, so, so, so there's there's just so many unknowns here. Um, you know, how much would be enough? You know, what is the elusive? We call it herd immunity that we could get at. What percentage of people would need to be vaccinated before we really start to see a, a massive decrease in the amount of virus in the community, which then has this protective blanket that that protects other people who even aren't vaccinated? So, I'm hoping we can get there. You know, I mean, in California. About 10% of the state that we know about has already been infected with COVID. So that's, if you like, you know, a minimum of 10% of people are already are already protected in that way. About 11 or 12% of the state has been vaccinated with at least one dose. So, you know, we're probably higher up that number than we realize. And as we start to ramp up vaccination rates, you know, we're we're going to get there, I think, fairly quickly. And I'm I'm reasonably optimistic that, um, you know, we are going to be able to keep ahead of these spikes. But 
that also depends on people, you know, not letting their guard down at this moment and continuing with the behavior we know will really um, stop the spread. All right, uh, Paul, let's turn to some listener questions now. First, uh, about the vaccine. Are the first dose and the second dose vaccine ingredients identical in the dosages? Yes, they are. And um, and that's kind of puzzling to people because, you know, we hear this, people talk about, oh, the second dose really, you know, had a lot of side effects and I didn't in the first, but they are, they're identical. The idea is that we do what we call a prime with the first uh, dose and then a boost with the second dose. And the combination of these two shots helps your immune response to really pay attention um, and develop what we call memory. And that gives you the really high degree of protection. And, and A, we see that with lots of other vaccines. You know, there's many two-shot vaccines like the chickenpox or hepatitis A and B vaccines. They're also two-shot vaccines. Paula, I'm going to fold in this listener question with a story about my mom because she is scheduled to get her second dose on Friday and then she wants to immediately head to her worship service on Sunday. So, I, But I'm begging her to please at least give it a couple of weeks after her second dose. So Paula, any, any, any precaution necessary after getting that second dose? Do you still need a quarantine? Yes, absolutely. You need to wait two weeks until after the second dose to be at these high levels, 95% protection. And I say to people, I get it. I get it. You know, we've waited so long and two weeks, it's going to be the longest two weeks of your life. Believe you me, I've just passed the two week point for my second dose. And I was, I was counting off the days, but I would say to your mother and you know what, a have her call me if if, if you can't convince her, but you know, but it's just, we've waited so long, please, please respect the efforts of the scientists and the clinicians, respect all the people who went before you, who didn't have the luxury of getting this vaccine and just be a little bit more patient and don't contribute at this last, last, you know, late stage to either getting yourself infected or potentially spreading it to somebody else. Now, Paula, we've talked about this uh, for, for many months now. Um, even if I have two shots in my arm, Paula, I am still wearing a mask for a while. I don't know how long, but for a while, still washing up as often as I can. But as things continue to reopen and, and people get vaccinated, we head into the spring and summer, uh, people are going to be outside more. How optimistic are you about life becoming more normal in the next few months? And, and is there anything maybe you still like to caution people against? I am optimistic um, because, you know, the numbers are going to start coming down as we get more people vaccinated. But also, I think what I'm optimistic about, and again, I, I can speak to this because I've been vaccinated now is, oh boy, the the sense of, you know, sleeping well at night that being vaccinated gives me. I mean, I'm not going to change my behavior. I'm still wearing a mask when I go outside. I'm, I'm still doing all these things because, you know, we don't fully know that I can't be infected and infect somebody else. And also, I don't want to be walking around making other people nervous because I'm not wearing a mask. But boy, the the sense of uh, it's I, I, yeah, it's it's wonderful to know that that I and therefore my family are are so much more protected. So so I'll say to people, you know, when you get vaccinated, again, um, enjoy that moment. But please, um, you take the privilege that you've got that vaccine and extend it to the rest of the community who haven't yet been vaccinated by continuing with with these behaviors, the masking, the the staying at a distance, um, smaller gatherings, please, for all of us. I admit, uh, generally, Paula, I am a pessimist, but I am feeling cautiously optimistic more than I ever have uh, in, the, in the last year. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, that's uh, Professor Paula Cannon, a virologist with USC's Keck School of Medicine. Paula, thank you very much. You're welcome, May.
All right, L.A. County says elementary schools are clear to reopen. LAUSD and the teachers union, though, are still negotiating what reopening would look like. Coming up next, we're going to hear from Supervisor Janice Hahn on what has to happen next to get the kids back in class. She's coming up when Take Two continues in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. Ami Martinez. All right, now to getting back to that decision reached last night by Los Angeles County to allow schools to start reopening. It was a bit of a shock to see that headline. I mean, I think most of us thought uh, there wasn't really a chance of this happening for months. But on Monday, the county hit a key threshold in the battle with the coronavirus, averaging about 20 cases per 100,000 residents. All good news, but since teachers have yet to be prioritized for vaccinations, what can really happen here and when, especially in our public schools? L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hahn was the first person to announce the news via Twitter yesterday, so we called her up to uh, ask about what happens next. Supervisor, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be be with you. Now, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about why the threshold that I mentioned, those numbers, uh, why they're so important for the county and what it means in terms of it being safe for elementary schools to uh, reopen? Well, we've always had that magic number that we needed to reach a five-day average of uh, 25 cases per 100,000. And we hit it. Uh, yesterday. So that triggered um, the state saying you can now reopen um, elementary schools, provided, number one, they already had a wager, a waiver, uh, or number two, they have submitted a school safety reopening plan. Um, So the good news is that clearly our cases are going in the right direction. We're dropping in cases, in hospitalizations, in deaths. So we are moving in the right direction, and we just needed that five-day average to trigger school reopenings. Now, there's a Uh lot, as you said, that needs to happen before kids are going to be back in the classroom, but at least now they're allowed to reopen. And I think the public was really waiting for this. Now, Supervisor, I may be just uh, a worrywart on all of this, but uh, why not wait just a, a little while longer, especially considering that uh, many school districts and, and, and unions aren't quite ready to, to go there yet? What we announced was that we're allowed to to open. So whether or not school district individual school districts decide to take that next step to actually reopen will depend on a lot of things. Uh, but we thought it was important for the public to know it's happened. We're allowed to reopen. As you know, there's been a pretty large groundswell from parents and students who really want to get back to in-classroom learning. And we know that a lot of kids have suffered. Um, we've, we know many kids have mental health challenges that have really gotten worse uh, during this at-home virtual learning. We know parents are going crazy uh, trying to either homeschool their kids or or having to go to school, having to go to work, and having yeah. to leave their kids at home trying to navigate this virtual learning situation. So 
I think it was important that the public knew that we had reached this milestone, give them a little hope that maybe things could get back to normal uh, sooner than later. That waiver you mentioned, uh, what about schools that have not already filled out that waiver? So if schools do not already currently have a waiver, um, they need to have submitted a safe school reopening plan um, to our Department of Mental uh, Department of Public Health, um, and then it's they'd have to wait seven days before you know we could review it and make sure that they were uh, need to open safely, and they need to tell us how they're going to deal with some of these safety protocols inside the classroom, face coverings, um, how they're going to reconfigure their classroom so that we can have that physical distance between desks, um, how they're going to continue to do testing um, and contact contract tracing. Um, do they need to tell you or show you? Do they need to actually like show you what well, uh, they Well, they need to have it in writing, okay. and then our health department certainly will do some site visits if they feel like it warrants that kind of follow-up. Okay. Now, the issue that uh, we've been talking about a lot over the last few months is vaccination for staff and teachers. Mm -hmm. Uh, L.A. County Office of Education released uh, this statement saying, quote, prioritizing staff who work on campus with students for the vaccine is critical as our districts work with their labor partners to safely reopen campuses, end quote. Uh, Supervisor, what does that statement mean to you? Well, I agree that we need to get uh, the teachers and then all the staff that support a school site, from the custodians to the cafeteria uh, personnel to the bus drivers. I mean, there's a lot of employees that uh, support a staff. Many of them are already on campus right now with some of the schools that have reopened under these waivers. So we need to get them vaccinated as soon as possible. I wrote a letter to the governor a couple months ago saying that I thought teachers Teachers and school uh, personnel needed to go to the head of the class, no pun intended, uh, for vaccines because, um, as you said in, in your opening, you know, there's some teachers that refuse to go back to school until they're vaccinated. So does that mean that uh, it, is that something that just will only be coming from the state? In other words, can the county maybe take the reins on this and, and move up teachers? Well, starting March 1st, we were going to begin uh, vaccinating teachers, but at the same time, we have all those other essential workers, the grocery workers, um, some first responders who weren't in that initial tier of, of healthcare workers. So it's kind of another big group of essential workers. We were going to put them all together March 1st. I'm still one of those that feels um, like we should prioritized teachers, uh, particularly because some of these schools will not open until the teachers get vaccinated. So I'm hoping we had a discussion today among the Board of Supervisors about that very issue. So the county can do it without uh, the governor saying it's okay. We could. And, okay. you know, our superintendent of the largest school district in certainly the state, the second in the country, LAUSD, um, Austin Butner has suggested that LAUSD be given a certain allotment of vaccines, like, say, 25,000, and let them uh, prioritize their 
their teachers, their staff, and set up their own appointment system, which might work easier than lumping all those uh, essential workers into the whole state and county website to try to get an appointment. Because, you know, we worry about equity. We worry about diversity. And, you know, maybe some people in the school system can navigate this website, right? They can sit there at the computer and refresh it all day long. But maybe the bus drivers or some of the custodial staff maybe don't have that luxury of refreshing their computer every five minutes. And maybe it would be better to just give those doses to LAUSD and let them determine how they could vaccinate their entire uh, workforce. So for this date on March 1st, when you hope to uh, open up vaccinations for teachers, um, what needs to happen? Would there need to be an adequate supply of the, vac- of the vaccine or what else needs to happen for that to be a reality on March 1st? Well, that is going to be a reality, but what will prevent us from vaccinating all the teachers for all the school districts in L.A. County will be the amount of vaccines because it sounds like we're going to proportionally allocate some for teachers, some from grocery workers, some for, you know, first responders. And so that everybody gets a little, it sounds like, is the plan from our Department of Public Health. Um, We need more vaccines and we need uh, the federal government to give us more vaccines. But I will say that that, you know, the Whittier School District, for instance, figured out how to make sure all their teachers who were 65 and older got vaccinated at a clinic in Whittier. And they sort of organized that, which is what I kind of tell people that if, you know, if you're 65 and older um, and you're a teacher, get vaccinated now and we can start at least vaccinating that population. So it sounds like logistics could come to play here because if, if say, you were to give the doses straight to the district, they could set up things on campuses and vaccinate staff that way. Yes, and they have the resources, they have the volunteers, they, plus they have the database, right? They can begin to notify um, the particular uh, classification of school employee. You know, today we're doing, you know, to the teachers. Tomorrow we're doing the bus drivers. Thursday we're doing, you know, the janitorial staff. I mean, they could be really organized about that. That's what I want to do. So far, um, I haven't exactly convinced uh, the Department of Public Health uh, to do that as well. But I think the more vaccines we get, well, yeah. the more chances are we'll be able to do something like that. Because that sounds like it's, it's a done and done thing, Supervisor. Why not just have that be what happens? Well, you know, <laughs> it takes, there's five supervisors and there's, a, and there's a, obviously a very strong Department of Public Health uh, with our doctors there. And they're all deciding what they think is in the best interest of the entire population of L.A. County. Look, we got to vaccinate 10 million people in L.A. County um, with not enough vaccines. So at some point, the priorities have have emerged. I just think. The priority, I believe, for most in the public today is to get kids back to school. I think um, they have lost a whole year of of learning. We don't know what long-term effects that's having on some of these kids academically. Um, And we know that parents are having a really hard time uh, having their kids at home. We need to get back to some sense of normalcy. And I believe getting the L.A. Unified School District back 
open is probably um, the best course forward. We're talking to L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hahn. So, Supervisor, come March 1st, if on that date teachers are still no higher on the list, no higher on the priority list, who should we who should we talk to about that? Who should we have to blame on that? Well, again, they'll be, you know, there, but they'll also be there with all these other workers. Uh, so so it still know, might not happen then. It's still, the, you know. Yeah, there's a case to be made that our grocery workers who have been going to work every day since this began and who, you know, are also contracting this virus and aren't that well protected from the public behind the the check stand, right? Um, They would argue that they also need vaccines. Our dock workers who are key to the supply chain of good movements um, in the county, in the country, are arguing that they too should be uh, vaccinated as quickly as possible. So it's it's a tough place to be. I don't enjoy this at all, that we're somehow having essential workers compete against essential workers, who's most essential to the county. Um, I know personally, I just want to see kids get back to school in person. I think that will be the best step to reopening our economy and getting uh, back to some sense that we have been able to, I don't know, not conquer this virus, but we've been able to deal with it in the in the best way possible. Well, at least manage it, right? I mean, if conquering it doesn't manage happen, it. managing it. Uh, so I hate to be the pessimist here, uh, Supervisor. So what happens, though, if cases go up again? Do schools uh, get shut down? Do we take a step back? That's a really good question, A. And I, you know, I sort of share your anxiety, particularly with these new variants. Um, I guess we've got nine variants now that have... Uh, shown their face uh, here. And I think that's very scary. We know they're more contagious. We're not really sure if the vaccine is going to work against them. So I share that. Um, But I think, to me, the answer is vaccination. We've got to vaccinate as many people as we can, as quickly as we can. That's what you're seeing now in terms of the cases dropping. The more people we can vaccinate, and by the way, we've vaccinated, I think, almost one and a half million people uh, here in L.A. County. So the more we vaccinate, the more those cases are going to come down because people are less likely to get it or transmit it. So I'm all about vaccines and vaccinating. That, I think, will help. So, Supervisor, you mentioned um, parents earlier, parents of elementary Mm -hmm. school kids who maybe can't work a shift because they have to be home with their kids or maybe have had to give up work altogether because Mm -hmm. they've had to be home with their kids. If a month from now we're still having this same conversation and teachers are no higher on the list, as I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. what do you have to say to those parents who are wondering when they'll be able to send their kids back to school? That's, you know, and that's what I'm working towards. Those are the letters I get into my office. Those are the phone calls I get into my office. Those are the elected officials that are are texting me and calling me, get our kids back to school. Um, I, I Again, I, I think there will be some school districts, A, that will be opening. There are some school districts who whose teachers are not putting that requirement on themselves to go back to work. So there will be some school districts that will be opening around the county. There's 80 school districts in the county of Los Angeles. The big one is LAUSD, you know, 750,000 kids, I think. Um, 
that's the one where we need to vaccinate the teachers. And I'm going to keep working towards that. Parents can certainly um, raise their concerns with the Board of Supervisors. Okay. That's the place where I think the change could happen. That's L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hahn. Supervisor, thank you very much. Thanks, A. More Take Two coming up. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm Martinez. We turn now to a troubling pattern of attacks on older Asian Americans in the Bay Area. At the end of January, an 84-year-old Thai man in San Francisco was out on a morning walk. He was assaulted and later died of his injuries. Then in Oakland's Chinatown, police say a man violently shoved three Asian men and women in public, injuring them as well. These incidents fit into a larger pattern of hate crimes and discrimination against Asian Americans all across the United States, many related to the COVID-19 pandemic. The group Stop AAPI Hate has been tracking such crimes since last March. And so far, it's recorded more than 2,800 incidents nationwide. And community members say they've actually been more than that. They just haven't been reported. Manjusha Kulkarni is the executive director of the Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council here in Los Angeles. And she has partnered up with Stop AAPI Hate and San Francisco State University to track incidents across California and also come up with solutions. When we spoke last week, she talked to us about the frequency of attacks against Asian seniors and others who are perceived as more vulnerable. Here's Manjusha. What is in line with our other data is that individuals who are seen as vulnerable are being selected for acts of violence, acts of hate. And so we know that about 7 to 8% of those who report to the Stop AAPI Hate Reporting Center have come from our senior community. And we also know that women are targeted as well. And so unfortunately, vulnerable folks do get picked on sometimes for these type of incidents. And that's why urgent action really is needed, because this is not acceptable. And news of these incidents came out uh, on social media first out of frustration that traditional media wasn't covering these stories. Uh, Why do you think it took so long to get attention on this? So many of the issues that affect Asian American communities have been neglected. And that's why we started Stop AAPI Hate last year, because even here in Southern California, before COVID-19 reached our city, we saw that there was an act of hate um, against a middle school child. Um, In fact, it was exactly a year ago uh, where he was physically attacked and verbally assaulted. And, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, the media doesn't always see and understand issues of those who are you know, have limited English proficiency or come from immigrant communities. They don't necessarily take up the same space as others. Um, But I'm glad to see that it's getting the coverage it deserves now. And what's more important is that our policymakers take action. What was it like uh, to hear about these first incidents? What was it like for you just just to hear that this was happening? I can tell you on a personal level, it's been devastating to read 
day after day, these incidents as they're taking place, as they're being reported to us. You know, people right now um, are really anxious. They're experiencing high levels of depression and nervousness. So that's why, again, we think that action is so important and really urge our local lawmakers to begin to look at this issue because it's happening in LA, just like it's happening in the Bay Area. And sadly, uh, reports to us have come from 47 states. So it's really, unfortunately, a national phenomenon. I know your organization has worked with LA County on solutions to crimes happening here. What's uh, being worked on? I'm proud to say that we are part of a network called LA versus hate that is coordinated by the LA County Human Relations Commission. And so we are able to not only see what's happening at the local level through calls made to 211, as well as our site, but we're actually able to do something about it. Uh, We directly provide help and support to community members. We're able to do that in a culturally and linguistically appropriate way so we can help those you know, who may not speak English very well or who may come from immigrant communities. But the ability to both identify and seek policy solutions as well as help individuals, their families, and their communities is so important to our work. And just to be clear, LA versus hate would be a way for our listeners to, to find out more about this information and, and how they can kind of see how it's happening. Exactly. They can also report an incident there okay. through that website um, and also through 211. We're talking with Manjusha Kulkarni, Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council. Speaking of community, I know uh, you've worked with uh, West Covina Homeowners Association, which has been experiencing anti-Asian racism. Tell us uh, a little bit about uh, what you've done there and, and how you've approached it. That's a perfect example of how local leaders can come together, whether they be from the nonprofit sector or government. But really what has happened in that case is we had a family that was really terrorizing other community members in that housing complex, uh, making racist remarks and taking actions that put them and their children in harm's way. And so what we've been able to do is work with those families, work with the Human Relations Commission and working with partners at DOJ, as well as our law enforcement and civil rights agencies to figure out what exactly is going on and what are the right answers? Is this about criminal prosecution? Is this about training um, for community members that live in West Covina? I think it's so important that they're able to share their experiences with their city council and then also develop the leadership to be able to actually address what's going on because this is a multifaceted issue and it's going to take a, a lot of different solutions. What other support should these communities have from the federal government or maybe even from the state as well? I think that there are a number of actions um, that can be taken. We do believe that there are some gaps in our national civil rights laws uh, that need to be addressed by Congress and also by the president. One of those also is potentially the No Hate Act, which looks at better data gathering by the FBI and opportunities to enhance our hate crimes laws 
federally. And we were really heartened to see President Biden issue a memorandum really condemning racist rhetoric that unfortunately was used by our prior president and actually directing the Department of Justice to take steps to work with communities and community members. And I think that's really where the solutions are at, whether we're talking about a local, state, or federal level. That's Manjusa Kulkarni, Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council. Thank you very much. Thank you. California Governor Gavin Newsom has had a lot of heat on him lately. Recall effort is one example, but another comes from his Democratic colleagues all over the state. You see, Newsom has one more appointment to make, and that's Attorney General. And he's being pressured from all corners to consider a very long list of interested candidates for that job. Find out who wants that job when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places, you get your podcasts. Sammy Martinez. Next Tuesday, California Attorney General Javier Becerra is expected to face a confirmation hearing for a new job, and that's Secretary of Health and Human Services. President Biden nominated him to that position late last year. Now, Becerra's nomination is uh, not necessarily a sure thing because we've seen reporting that Senate Republicans are planning to object and slow down that process. But... If Becerra does get that job, Governor Gavin Newsom has to appoint his replacement. And that will, of course, have important implications for us here in California. Laurel Rosenhall has been reporting on this for the online news site Cal Matter. So let's start off with a little Attorney General 101. What are, what are the main responsibilities of an Attorney General and, and what additional duties might be added to that plate? Yeah, you know, the attorney general is a very powerful office in state government, really second only to the governor in terms of the amount of impact they can have. And, you know, they're the top lawyer for the state. They're the top litigator for the state. They're also the top cop, you know, the top law enforcement officer. They have a lot of responsibilities for consumer protection issues, gambling and firearms regulation, internet privacy, and criminal investigations. So there's really a lot of important things on their plate. And the California Attorney General will also be tasked now with investigating all deadly police shootings of unarmed civilians. So it's something that uh, whoever winds up being the new Attorney General will have to do something that largely Javier Becerra wasn't really willing to do. Exactly. This is a new responsibility for the office based on a law that was passed last year. So the Attorney General will have potentially more of a role in, you know, police reform and in holding police accountable for misconduct. So there is a big debate, you know, with civil rights advocates who really want the next attorney general to take leadership on that issue. Now, under Javier Becerra's leadership as attorney general, California led a lot, a lot of legal challenges against the Trump administration. I think I I was counting at least 100. Maybe it went over a little bit. Tell us more about uh, Becerra's style as an attorney general. Yeah, he was the face of the resistant state. He surpassed Texas even in the amount of lawsuits, the speed at which 
Texas filed lawsuits against the Obama administration. Becerra filed even more lawsuits at a faster pace against the Trump administration at a pace of about two times a month. So he was suing on all kinds of major policy issues, environmental regulations, immigration policy, and of course, defending the Affordable Care Act. He really got a lot of attention for his basically sticking up for the Affordable Care Act, which he helped write when he was in Congress. Now, with Becerra up for the Secretary of Health and Human Services job, Newsom, Gavin Newsom, is now looking for a a new attorney general under a very different, though, presidential administration. Now, Laurel, from your reporting, how do you expect the job to change now that Donald Trump is not in the White House? Well, you know, suing the Trump administration every other week is not going to be in the job description, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I mean, the people really expect that the next attorney general will be having a much more of an inward focus here in California, could be on the police reform and police accountability issues we talked about just earlier, and then also on all of the other responsibilities around criminal investigation and environmental protection, consumer protection, and And then internet privacy, which is increasingly an important issue in California as well. We're speaking with Laurel Rosenhall, reporter for Cal Matters, covering California politics about the governor's upcoming attorney general pick. Now, your article drills down on seven possible candidates. We have a link on our website. It's at LAist.com. But Laurel, who would you say is in the lead right now? First of all, a caveat, you know, this is not a public election the way people are used to. This is a very private process. The governor is conducting all of his sort of selection behind the scenes. We don't have any kind of public reporting requirements on this. So, yes, I've been talking to a lot of people and I can tell you who it sounds like is in the lead, but this is not like an official thing with polls or, you know, anything like that. But it does sound like right now that Assembly Member Rob Bonta and Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg are two of the top contenders. They both bring really different qualities to the job, but they both have relationships with Governor Newsom. And a lot of people think that it's going to be important to him to pick someone who he knows and trusts. When it comes to Bonta, remember, I was it last week when Governor Newsom was standing in front of the Oakland Alameda Coliseum. And he That's was asked right. the question, yeah, about who is going to be his new AG. And he mentioned, some, you know, some people behind him might be interested. Rob Bonta was standing right there. What are his strengths and liabilities? You know, he and Newsom are political contemporaries, both, you know, came up in through local politics in the Bay Area. They've been allies in some changes to the criminal justice system. They both were in favor of creating a legal marijuana marketplace. They both worked on the issue of ending the use of cash bail, which, of course, voters overturned last year. But they did, you know, both work on that a few years ago. And then they also have worked together on a law that phases out the use of private prisons in California. Bonta has support from really prominent civil rights advocates, including one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. And so he definitely is coming in as kind of with a lot of progressive support. And so those are sort of his selling points, I guess you could say. And I've talked on the show a little bit about uh, Adam Schiff possibly being interested in the job. So far, as far as I know, uh, Laurel, he hasn't said one way or the other if he is uh, maybe lobbying Gavin Newsom for the job. But I know that he has support from a pretty heavy hitter in House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. How might that kind of weight maybe favor his chances? Yeah, you know, Schiff does not have a personal relationship with Gavin Newsom. As far as I could find out, they never really crossed paths politically working in the same place at the same time. 
But Schiff is close with Nancy Pelosi and one of her most trusted confidants. And Nancy Pelosi is close with Gavin Newsom. They've known each other for many, many years. Their families have connections that go back many generations. You would imagine that her endorsement would be influential on the governor. Laura, you mentioned how this isn't uh, really a, a transparent process. Wondering if there's any secret contenders that are really flying low under the radar right now. That's absolutely possible. And I will say that, you know, California went through this process four years ago when at the time, Attorney General Kamala Harris had been elected to the Senate. That was 2016. And Governor Jerry Brown had to pick a new attorney general. And at the time, you know, we were all reading and writing articles about who might be in the mix and who could get the pick and who would he go for. And Honestly, when he chose Javier Becerra, it came as a real surprise. So it's entirely possible that there is someone or, you know, various contenders who are in the mix that we haven't surfaced yet. And really, there's no requirement that the governor, you know, make any of this public and, until he announces who he wants that person to be. So speaking of Newsom, he's been very tight-lipped about this, but uh, I'm sure he has a lot of different interests trying to pressure him one way or another. Uh, what considerations are running through Gavin Newsom's head as he considers the choices? You know, a lot of people are saying that he's probably really wants someone who is going to be a strong ally. There's this potential recall looming out there. He probably doesn't want any kind of, you know, climber who might try to challenge him in the future, whether it's in the recall election or whether it's on the regular re-election next year. At the same time, you know, he wants an AG who can win re-election in 2022. That's when the office will be up for re-election by the public. And you would imagine that he wants to put in a strong contender who could win and, and be a, a strong ally for him. Those are probably some pretty major considerations. Laurel, back to uh, Javier Becerra before you go. Gavin Newsom has said he will not appoint a new attorney general until Becerra is confirmed as secretary. But just from reading all the tea leaves on this, uh, his hearing, his confirmation hearing might be the toughest of them all. So what's the possibility that maybe California might not need a new attorney general? I wouldn't put a number on that question <laughs> right now, but it is possible, you know, and that has crossed my mind, but that is going to come down to the politics of the United States Senate and whether the Republicans who are opposing Becerra's nomination can peel off any Democrats to join them. So we're obviously going to be watching to see what happens there, because if Becerra doesn't get that job, then, you know, there's no need for a new attorney general in California. That's Laurel Rosenhall, reporter for Cal Matters, covering California politics, telling us all about what's behind the choice for the next California attorney general. Laurel, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. A lot of great conversations today on Take Two. You might have missed one or two of them, but they're all online. They exist there digitally. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts, and there we will be waiting to be heard by you. We're also on social media on Twitter, at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A. Martinez LA. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps.